Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy, and today we're covering the case of boxing legend Arturo Gotti. If you came thinking you'd hear all about his boxing career, this is not the podcast for you. However, we will be discussing aspects of murder and suicide in this case. If you don't want to hear about those topics, this is also not the episode for you. If you love a good whodunit and a case that leaves us questioning motives and actions, you are in the right place. Let's dive in. Their marriage hadn't been easy recently. Arturo Gotti and his wife, Amanda Rodriguez, were in the throes of a volatile and disintegrating marriage. The pair had met in late 2006, married in 2007, and had a son. There had been violence and abuse in the relationship. Arturo was no stranger to violence. In fact, his whole life revolved around it. He was a boxer, a really, really good boxer, who fought professionally between 1991 and 2007. He was a Canadian world champion in two weight classes, and he fought against some of the greats, including Floyd Mayweather, Mickey Ward, and Oscar De La Hoya. He retired with a record of 40 wins and 9 losses, with 31 wins by knockout. Unfortunately, the fighting wasn't contained to the ring. Arturo retired in 2007, the year he married Amanda. At 35 years old, he was making big changes in his life. He is retiring from boxing and madly in love with Amanda, who was 22. For most people, this would have been a time of celebration, and maybe it was for Arturo, too, but he partied too hard. In late 2007, she would send him to rehab. A year later, she would file a restraining order from the Court of Quebec, ordering Arturo to keep away from her. According to Amanda, Arturo was a completely different man when he was drinking, and he drank a lot. For her part, Amanda knew just what to say and what to do to push Arturo's buttons. Despite all of this, in July of 2009, things seemed to be looking up for the pair. Over the last couple of months, they seemed to have been getting along well, and, according to Amanda, they were working on their issues. She would say their relationship was great. Together, they were planning a three-week trip to Europe and Brazil. Amanda would describe the trip to Europe as a second honeymoon. Their trip would start in Paris where Arturo surprised Amanda with a romantic trip to the Eiffel Tower. She said that while they were taking in the view, Arturo had champagne brought over. Inside her glass was a diamond ring. It was a gift from her husband, and he was apologizing for his behavior. He swore he would mend his ways for his family. On the next leg of the trip, Arturo would pick up their ten-month-old, and the whole family would fly to Brazil, where Arturo could spend time with his extended family and they would attend Arturo's sister's wedding. They checked into a Brazilian seaside resort near Puerto de Galinas. After settling in for a few days, they decided it was time to go out on the evening of July 10, 2009. It was late, and the baby was hungry, but that didn't slow them down. Amanda packed a bottle for Arturo Jr., and they went out for pizza. They opened a bottle of wine together, and then another. Then Arturo switched to beers. He were to order seven before suggesting to Amanda that they go to a bar. Amanda said she was tired and ready to go home. The baby was sleeping, and Arturo was drunk. She'd seen it before, and she suffered the consequences that came from Arturo's drinking. So she told him no, and they began to argue. The crowd outside the pizzeria would see it all. The couple's argument became louder and progressed from verbal to physical. 
The crowd would see Amanda, bruised and bloodied, after Arturo threw her to the floor. She tried to take the baby and leave, but Arturo wouldn't let her. So hurt and exhausted, she left Arturo with the baby who was sleeping in a stroller. She had no money on her, so it took her quite a while before she made her way back to the hotel room. When she arrived there, she found Arturo sitting with his arms around the crying baby. Arturo's blood was dripping onto the baby's head. Amanda didn't know it at the time, but the crowd that had witnessed Arturo throwing Amanda to the ground had dealt him a little street justice. After she left the pizzeria to return to the hotel, a group of twenty men would attack the boxer. Arturo fought back as he had always trained to do. He wasn't a man to give up, drunk or not. He and the baby would take a cab back to the hotel, arriving beaten and bruised, hit by fists, rocks, and even a bicycle. Arturo looked up at Amanda from the floor with her son in his arms, and he said, I guess it's over, huh? She told him, yes, it's over, then picked up Junior before she went upstairs to bed. A few hours later, their son woke up and was ready for a bottle. Amanda made her way downstairs early that morning before the sun had risen. As she made her way to the kitchen, she saw something that she'd seen before. It was her husband laying on the floor, naked except for his underwear. Maybe she sighed with exasperation and acknowledgement upon seeing him in a position like that once again, but she kept quiet. Groggily, and maybe with a little bit of a hangover herself, she filled the baby's bottle and headed back to bed. Around nine the following morning, Amanda would wake up again. She made her way downstairs still upset and ready to finish her argument with Arturo. As she walked down the stairs, she saw that he hadn't moved from the position he was in earlier that morning. She was suddenly struck with worry. She ran to him, shook him, and felt that his body was cold. He was face down on the floor, and there was a halo of blood spreading outwards from his head. She saw a knife laying nearby. It took her a moment to realize what she was looking at. She began screaming at him, saying, Arturo, I forgive you. Please wake up. Please wake up. Then she began screaming, My husband is dead. Somebody help me. When authorities arrived, Amanda was removed from the scene, and she tried to explain what happened. But she, at 23 years old, was now a single mother, and would soon face the charge of murder. She was arrested on July 12th as the primary suspect in her husband's murder. She had been separated from her baby, and was now in custody of the Brazilian police. Why? Well, they very quickly ruled that Arturo had been murdered. There were strangulation marks on his neck marks that seemed to have been caused by a blood-stained purse strap found at the scene. The strap belonged to Amanda's purse. She also couldn't explain how she didn't realize for ten hours that her husband was dead. Law enforcement believed that Amanda had strangled Gotti while he was passed out, which would have been the only time she would have been able to overpower Arturo. It was impossible for anyone else to have done it. There were no signs of forced entry, and the electronic locks on the door confirmed that no one other than the two of them had entered the unit. Amanda had to explain things somehow. She claimed she didn't know how he died, but maybe he killed himself, or maybe someone, somehow, entered the apartment and murdered him. All she knew was that she was innocent. Her family stood beside her, explaining that there's no way she could have done it. Arturo's family believed there was no way he could take his own life. Amanda would get a lawyer whose primary line of argument was that she was fragile, young, and skinny. How could she kill a boxing champion? 
wouldn't it be more likely that Arturo's drunken state and the injuries he suffered at the hands of the angry mob, as well as the depression he felt because his wife was leaving him, combined into a perfect storm, one that would culminate in Arturo taking his own death. He left no suicide note. There were so many questions left unanswered, but he had been silenced by the purse strap that had been wrapped around his neck and the toppled stool found next to his body. Amanda was in jail for just over two weeks before the Brazilian police eventually accepted her lawyer's explanation. She would be set free. News media covering her release would share videos of her walking out of the jail, sunglasses on her face and a beaming smile. She waved at reporters and seemed to be on top of the world. Her cheerful demeanor upon her release was an irritation to Arturo's extended family. She had been unable to attend her husband's funeral because of her jail time. They felt like she should be mourning the loss of her husband, and here she was dancing around while they had building suspicions over her involvement in his death. One of Arturo's friends had come forward to say that he had received a voicemail from Arturo while he was in Europe. The message said, Tony, you were right. It's a fucking nightmare. I'll talk to you later, all right? I'll be back sooner than I expected. This indicated to him and Arturo's family that Amanda had been lying. Her second honeymoon description goes head-to-head with his fucking nightmare. Arturo's family hired their own investigators to look into the couple's past and into the night of Arturo's death. The first step the Doubting Gotti family took was requesting a second autopsy. The initial autopsy indicated that Arturo may have committed suicide, but it didn't rule out the possibility that he didn't. The second autopsy was performed by coroners in Quebec, and there were some surprises. The first was that the initial autopsy was a partial autopsy, not a full autopsy. A complete autopsy is an examination of the entire external body along with an internal examination of all major organs. A partial autopsy examines a specific area of the body or areas of the body depending on the family's or police officer's request. In the case of homicide, typically only a partial autopsy is done, especially if the reason for death is obvious. The second autopsy agreed with the first for the most part. Gotti had died by strangulation, but homicide couldn't be ruled out. They found a drug called carisoprodol in Arturo's body. It's a muscle relaxant that's not used worldwide. It's not available in Canada. The drug is a sedative. It's habit-forming and has withdrawal symptoms, including anxiety, confusion, and psychosis that can last for days. The presence of the drug raised questions about Arturo's mental state when he died. In the police report from Brazil, the authorities tested the theory that Arturo hanged himself from the banister using the strap from Amanda's purse. They hung a 35-kilogram weight, or almost 80 pounds, from the strap, and it snapped in five seconds. How, then, did Arturo's body, that weighed twice that, hang from the strap for so long, long enough to cause his death? These findings might lead someone to believe that he was drugged and then strangled by the strap. A child could kill a heavyweight boxer by strangulation if he was knocked out. Certainly, a grown woman could have, too. Arturo's body was found on the floor underneath the stairs he had allegedly hung himself from. It was believed that he stood on a stool and tied his wife's purse strap around his neck and threw the guardrail on the stairway. 
It was believed that he kicked the stool out from underneath his feet and hung for three hours before the purse strap broke and he fell to the floor. I couldn't find any explanation as to why or how they came to the conclusion that he hung for three hours. That's outside my box of knowledge. Additionally, the purse strap would be found laying several feet from the body. In crime scene photos, Arturo is laying on his side, parallel with the stairs, and his head was partially wedged under a cabinet. He had a huge gash on the back of his head. There was a knife sitting on the cabinet as well as several bloodied towels. The knife wasn't ever explained, and the towels were never tested. When Arturo's family waited for his body to tell a story, Amanda decided it was time to tell hers. A month after Arturo's death, she published a letter in the Montreal Journal about her ordeal. She doesn't speak much about her husband's death, as much as she does about the fallout afterwards. She wanted to drive the point home that Arturo died by his own hand, and that Amanda was now a victim. First, she'd been held captive by the legal system, and she was now a victim of Arturo's family's unjustified suspicion and scorn. She expressed her love for her husband and for her family that helped her through his suicide. She also made it clear that there was animosity between her and her husband's late family. Her exact words were, The worst accusations come from his family family with whom I've never had any intimacy. Not because I didn't want to or didn't like them, but because my husband wasn't that close with his own family. She goes on to say that when they, meaning Arturo's family, wanted custody of her child, she was in shock. She felt like many of his family members hadn't tried to have a relationship with her or their son. She said, I've never visited or received any visit or help from any members of his family. She went on to say that Arturo's family are not in a condition to take care of her son, neither psychologically or financially. She believed this was a strategic move by them designed to give them rights to her husband's estate, but the family insisted they wanted to separate the baby from a murderess. Amanda and Arturo had met in 2006. They told a story that he was out walking his dog when he met her while she was out walking her dog. Arturo had told family and friends that Amanda was a student, but his friends would say Amanda didn't look like a student. The story that many people tell is that Amanda met Arturo at the Squeeze Lounge, which is a New Jersey gentleman's club. She allegedly worked there as an exotic dancer. Amanda vehemently denies this, but former employees of the establishment have pictures of her and tell stories of her inside the club. There's no record of her being an employee of the lounge, She's been known to take legal action against media organizations who claimed she was. There is, however, a photo in circulation of her wearing a bikini inside the club, which has only added fuel to the fire of suspicion over this matter. Either way, Arturo fell head over heels in love with her and excitedly introduced her to his friends. He believed that she liked him for who he was and not for his fame. Not for his money, but for the, his charm and who he was as a person. She claims that when they first started dating, even though they saw each other on a daily basis, it was two months before she figured out who he really was. He remembers that Amanda was slack-jawed when she found out that he earned his living by boxing and that he was internationally recognized. Was this naivety on her part or his? Arturo's friend said that he had terrible tastes in women. One of them, a boxing promoter named Kathy Duva, said that she believed the only woman who truly loved Arturo was his first wife and the mother of his daughter. Kathy recalls telling many of Arturo's friends about his death. 
one of the responses a friend gave, Kathy has never forgotten. This friend said, she finally killed him. Kathy found it interesting that the people who were closest to him believed that Amanda could have murdered him. This was the same reaction that Arturo's younger brother, Fabrizio, had when he heard the news for the first time. Family and friends would tell stories of the fights between Amanda and Arturo, one saying that it was Amanda yelling all the time. And she'd say things like, I'm going to kill you, Arturo. In another, she said, you're a loser. The only thing you're good at is bleeding. She had been seen hitting him over the head with a broom, throwing crystal glasses at him and demanding that he clean up the mess. They thought Amanda was foul-mouthed and bad-tempered. She'd even given him a black eye. The Monero sisters, who were friends of the family, would later testify in court about a dinner they had with Amanda. She'd received a text from Arturo, and she snapped. She said, if he thinks his exes were bitches, I'll show him. I'm going to be the biggest bitch. I'm going to kill him. At dinner, she criticized everyone in Gotti's family, saying their father, who had died many years ago, was a violent drunk and the brothers were lazy and just wanted Arturo's money. One of the sisters said I wasn't comfortable because I'd known these people for a long time. It bugged me that she couldn't see anything positive. The other said she was taken aback by the comments because she'd known the Gattis since she was young and thought they were a nice, normal family. Reportedly, Amanda said, if Arturo died one day, they'd all fight for his money, and she wasn't going to let that happen. The two sisters said they witnessed Amanda's diva-like behavior on other occasions, when she'd complain about the service in restaurants or insisted into getting into bars as a VIP. In January 2009, they both decided not to see her again, saying they were tired of her public outbursts. Another witness would say that on three occasions, Amanda threatened to kill Arturo if she ever got him to Brazil. Arturo, as I said earlier, had been a violent drunk. Two months before his death, he would break his restraining order, one that she had set against him. His alcoholism was backed up by the fact that he had been pulled over for drinking and driving in three separate states and had lost his privilege to drive for ten years. Early in their relationship, Amanda had convinced him to go to rehab. It was December of 2007, shortly after they were married. She recalled being upset that his sister took him out of the program three days early, insisting that he didn't need the treatment. The couple's babysitter would state that she often smelled alcohol on Arturo's breath, but she never saw the couple fighting. Amanda didn't tell the babysitter about her problems with Arturo, but she had said, I don't know what to do. He drinks and gets into trouble. Drinking wasn't all they fought about. Money was right at the top of the list, too. Before they got married, the couple signed a prenuptial agreement that would have left Amanda with nothing, not even alimony in the case of a divorce. Amanda would later deny having much knowledge of the agreement she signed. She said she signed the prenup without having fully read it and insisted she was unaware of its details. However, that same agreement was enough of an issue between the two that the couple went to the lawyer's office a couple months after their wedding, and according to an employee, Arturo tore up a copy of the agreement. In Amanda's version of the story, the agreement was torn up a couple days after the wedding. She claimed that she never asked Arturo to do it, but he chose to destroy the contract as a gesture of his love for her. In reality, the lawyer's secretary said that Arturo knew the copy wasn't the original when he ripped it up. She testified that he even winked at her before tearing the document as a sign to her that he knew it wasn't the original. According to the secretary, Amanda had a smirk on her face as she left the building. 
One week later, Arturo would call to double-check that the prenuptial agreement was still intact, and he was assured that it was. In early 2009, Arturo contacted his lawyer and asked him to send a copy of the prenuptial agreement to his divorce lawyer in Montreal. Amanda had also contacted a divorce lawyer at this time. Could it be that Amanda, upon seeing the prenup was still valid, realized she would lose everything, and maybe she began working on a plan to get Arturo's money another way? After Arturo's death, it came as a shock to his family when they found out he had changed his will in the last couple of months before he died. In other words, in the midst of divorce proceedings, he'd changed his will to favor Amanda, the woman he was divorcing, and his son. Perhaps this was devotion to Amanda and evidence of her innocence, but it's also pretty suspicious. Some believe that the new will, which left nearly everything to Amanda, was simply a placating gesture performed to appease the mother of his son. Something similar to tearing up the prenuptial. Amanda had threatened to take their son away and left Arturo fearful. She'd told him that she'd take their son to Brazil, and once there, she'd get full custody of the boy. The timing seemed too convenient. If Amanda was going to kill her husband, it made sense to secure her fortune first. It was now clear Arturo's extended family were no longer beneficiaries to Arturo's will. His daughter, from his first marriage, would have a trust set aside for her, but the rest would all go to Amanda and their son. The notary, who was responsible for drafting Arturo's will, claimed that his meeting with the couple seemed normal. They were about to fly off for a vacation and leave the baby behind with family. As Amanda, Arturo, and the notary worked through the will's details, Amanda began to show distrust of her husband. She seemed convinced that Arturo would one day be unfaithful. Straining to convince his wife of his devotion, Arturo told Amanda he would give her a million dollars in the event he was unfaithful. This was eventually drafted into an agreement that accompanied the will. The notary said he'd never encountered a measure like that, but that it was entirely the work of the couple. Was this last-minute change to Arturo's will a gesture of faith in their marriage? Was it simply done to appease her momentarily? Or was it that moment that the plan to secure her future by murdering Arturo was set into motion? Most of Arturo's family believed he would never quit, not in a fight and not in life. They just couldn't see him taking his own life. He had been working towards becoming a U.S. citizen and had plans for the future. No one could understand why he would suddenly take his life. Amanda would eventually leave her family in Brazil and return to Montreal, which is where most of Arturo's family lived. Meanwhile, the private investigators, hired by Arturo's family and former trainer, were building a case for murder. Using a program to digitally recreate the crime scene, investigators dropped a dummy, the same size as Gotti, from where he had allegedly hung. A thousand tries later, the dummy had yet to land under the stairs. It always fell forward, away from the stairs, not sideways. The hired investigators believed he had to have been strangled by somebody else, or his body would have had to be moved, or both. The purse strap was another point of suspicion. It had blood and skin on it, but if it had been used to hang Arturo, wouldn't it still have been around his neck if the strap had broke? Instead, it was found a few feet from his body. This is confirmed by police photos of the crime scene. The Brazilian authorities never tested the strap. If it had been used to hang Arturo, it would have picked up metal scraping from the railing and would have had wood or varnish from the stairs on it, but no such testing was conducted. 
Then there was Arturo's head wound. It was the investigator's opinion that Arturo got the injury so that he would be unconscious and could be easily strangled. One of the reasons he believed this was because of the absence of blood under where Arturo could have hung. There was no blood on the floor. He was shirtless when he was found, but there were no trails of blood dripping down his back and no blood on the stool that he would have used to stand on when he was preparing himself to hang. The only blood found was pooled around his head and on two towels that Brazilian investigators never analyzed. The question was, who struck him and who strangled him? The answer seemed obvious. He didn't do it himself and no one else entered the room, so it had to be Amanda. The Brazilian investigators would come back saying that in the experimental recreation of the hanging, they hung the dummy by wrapping a leather strap around one of the support columns for the handrail, not the handrail itself. This changed the trajectory. If they had set up the scenario correctly, Arturo might very well have ended up underneath the stairs. There's also the fact that some of the crime scene photos the investigation team had were taken after items in the room had been moved, including the purse strap. What's more, Fibers had been found on the railing where Arturo had supposedly hung himself, and they matched the fibers from the strap. There were also marks in the wood of the staircase that matched the shape of the metal clasp on the strap, which proved the Brazilian's theory that he hung himself. Of course, there was a possibility that Amanda might have strangled him, then hung him, to stage a suicide, but that seemed preposterous. Nevertheless, the hired investigators argued that Amanda could have struck him and rendered him unconscious before strangling Arturo, which would explain the wound on the back of his head. The problem was, there was no evidence to support it, no weapon, no blood spatter, nothing in the room to suggest that Arturo had been hit in that room. That shortage of forensic evidence might be explained by the taxi driver who drove Arturo and his son back to the hotel after his fight with the mob. The eyewitness said that Arturo fought off his attackers like a man possessed, but there was no escaping their rage unscathed. The taxi driver said that Arturo bled heavily in the cab. He said, I looked in the back seat and I saw there was blood all over. The whole headrest was stained with blood. Could it be then that Arturo suffered from chronic traumatic encephaly, or CTE? It's best known by its symptoms, which include depressive, impulsive behavior, emotional instability substance abuse, and suicidal behavior. Arturo exhibited the symptoms throughout his career and with greater intensity in his retirement. Could it be that he had a moment of weakness and impulsively decided to end his life after all? He hung himself, the strap broke, and as he fell, he hit his head, reopening the wound, and then blood slowly leaked from the dead man's open wound. Two people besides Amanda, would eventually come forward saying that Arturo had been suicidal in the past. One of them was a former girlfriend who was living with him in 2005, before he met Amanda. She claimed that he had tried to overdose on alcohol, cocaine, and prescription drugs. That night, hospital records from New Jersey, a state he temporarily called home, said that Arturo had arrived in the emergency room in an unresponsive state. He tested positive for cocaine and alcohol. A longtime friend, Mario Costa, testified that Arturo had threatened to commit suicide during a late-night visit to his home. He claims that Arturo asked for his gun. Costa said, I was afraid. I had my gun there, but I told him I didn't have my gun, because I believe if I gave him my gun that night, 
he probably would have shot it off right in front of me. That's how bad he was. The question still remained as to whether Arturo was murdered or not. In one corner was Arturo's family and trainer. The fight seemed to be led by Arturo's brother, Fabrizio. In the other corner, his wife and son. Originally, the prize for the Gaudi estate was worth six million, but in the three years after his death, it had been whittled down to 3.4 million after legal fees, which were still piling up. During a trial over who gets the money, Amanda would tell the court that during the time prior to Arturo's death, even though there was a court order that banned them from being together, they would still spend time together. She testified that one day when Chiquita's truck causing $4,000 in damage, they reconciled that night and slept together. She told the court, I know it sounds ridiculous, but that's how my relationship was. We were never mad at each other for too long. The family would come back with information stating that a few days before Arturo's death, Amanda had contacted the couple's financial advisor in New Jersey and asked him to wire $300,000 into a joint bank account because they had decided to stay in Brazil for a few months. The family is going to move into a condominium down there. Arturo's friends would testify that wasn't true. Arturo had just put in an offer on a condo in Montreal that was just for himself. To support this further, the lawyer that Arturo retained said that on the day Arturo made the offer on the condo, he was asked to call Amanda with the news of Arturo filing for divorce. Amanda's team would argue that this was all bad luck and timing. Arturo had willingly signed his new will, and that was that. Arturo's family wanted to get the new will nullified, and in an effort to do so, they were asked to produce a copy of his old will, but none could be found. The court would end up rewarding Amanda with the full $3.4 million. Amanda's financial battle wouldn't end there, though. She'd be sucker-punched by Erica Rivera, Arturo's first wife, and mother to his daughter. Erica was a former topless dancer from New Jersey, but now worked as a high-end car saleswoman. In a court battle over custody of their daughter, she had once claimed that Arturo was depressed, he abused drugs, and was suicidal. But now, as Arturo's family fought against Amanda, Erica joined them in the action believing that Amanda did, in fact, kill Arturo, and that Amanda should get nothing. If she succeeded in these claims, she would also have claim to the money. Erica explained that she only got involved because Amanda was making moves on the trust that Arturo had set up for his daughter. This trust left $125,000 for her education, a $250,000 share in a house, and a million-dollar trust fund from which monthly support payments were drawn. In 2012, her case would be dismissed by the judge, who told her that she could not sue Amanda for wrongful death in New Jersey. The following year, Amanda was wanting to put the past four years of murder accusations and the estate battles behind her. She had set up shop in Montreal where she opened a store called Boutique AG. She extended the hand of friendship to Arturo's mother. Amanda wanted her to put aside her suspicions and become a part of her grandson's life. Arturo's mother refused, claiming she was afraid to be in the same room as her daughter-in-law because she was afraid that Amanda would falsely accuse her of something. Arturo's family still had private investigators working to approve his death was homicide. In 2013, the hired investigator told the Global News that he had new evidence. He claimed the original lead investigator looking into Arturo's death has confessed on tape that some of the evidence at the scene was destroyed and that bribes were offered. Amanda's response was that she had nothing to hide. She can live anywhere in the world, 
and she can walk with her head up. The only things on her mind are taking care of her store and her son. As it stands, I can't find any reports of an ongoing investigation. Amanda is free. Her son, Arturo Jr., is now 14 and has taken up boxing. He looks a lot like his father. I went back and forth so many times on this case. It seemed to me that steps had already been made by both parties to move toward divorce. They both had time to wrap their minds around a separation. Arturo had been divorced before. He knew what it entailed. Maybe he didn't want to go through it again. Maybe he was tired of his family and friends making grabs for his money. Maybe he felt judged by the mob and felt guilty for what he had done to Amanda when he threw her to the floor, and in a moment of drunken sadness he killed himself. On the other hand, all the strange actions of Amanda, the recent change in Arturo's will, the request for money to be transferred to their shared account just days before Arturo's death, it looked like she was setting herself up financially. I'm on the fence, but if I had to make a decision, I'd lean towards him killing himself. The Brazilian authorities were on the scene right away. They had international attention and were dealing with a celebrity. I'd think they would be using the best of their resources to figure out what went on. They were able to refute the claims of the second investigation with logical answers. However, Brazil does have a very high police corruption rate. Bribes are often taken. The country has such a large discrepancy between the rich and the poor. Half of the 210 million Brazilians make less than $200 a month. The wealthiest 10% of the country earn a hundred times that. Poverty, unemployment, and lack of access to education provides a fertile ground for crime and corruption. Recently, renewed efforts are being made to fight it. The government is encouraging and assisting in the establishment of anti-corruption task forces. I think fear of the unknown, confusion over the state of their marriage, greed, and sadness were at the heart of most of the actions made just before and certainly after Arturo's death, both by Amanda and Arturo as well as by his family. According to my resources, Amanda doesn't keep in touch with Arturo's family, except for Arturo's older brother, Joe, who had his suspicions about Amanda, too, but she earned his trust because she reached out to him to set the record straight while she was in jail. He was entrusted with caring for Arturo Jr. when Amanda had to defend herself and care for things in Montreal right after Arturo's death. He believes she's innocent. If she's innocent, there's likely no way she will ever be able to prove it. If she's guilty, she seems to have gotten away with it, and with what could have been a fortune were it not for lawyer fees. Murder or suicide? I want to know what you think. Reach out to me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, or even through TikTok. If you want to see photos pertaining to the case, check those places out as well. There are links to social media in the show notes, and that is also where you will find a button you can press to donate to the show. I truly appreciate anyone who does do that and anyone who rates or reviews the show or interacts or maybe share the show on uh, so your own social media. Spread the word is what I'm trying to say. I'd like to thank a couple of people who have done that. Special thanks goes out to CC1961, who says, Great podcast, five stars. I really love this podcast. Sandy tells the stories very good with lots of background information. Her voice is nice to listen to. A great podcast for true crime lovers. Thank you very much. I'd also like to thank Foxy Mop Handle Mama <laughs> from Australia. She says, My new favorite. I don't know how I came across this podcast, but so glad I did. 
I've binged a few for days. The episode about Chris Lemon and saturation diving was amazing. Well done. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you all so much for listening, and I'd like to wish you all fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds. Take care of yourselves.